These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. A long time ago, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a group of people who were cut off from the modern world. They lived in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. Without roads, electricity, or even books, their world was way behind the rest of the United States. Many of these mountain folks didn't know how to read. But the world was changing and education was very important. A government program to provide work during the Great Depression allowed people to bring books and magazines to these folks and it changed their world. Today I have the story of the Pack Horse Library Project on the 193rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Good Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half an hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic that I would like to know more about and then write it into a hopefully entertaining story. Now, today's episode is being brought to you by Robin Kaufhold. Robin gets the honorary title of producer because she was so kind to contribute to my Patreon page. Thank you so much, Robin. You don't know how much your contribution means to me. And so before I get started, a quick word about why I need money for this show. I have this $2.5 million movie project that I'm trying to get off the ground, and I was thinking that if I got it... No, no, not, not really... What it really is, is not only does it cost money to host a podcast, but also I would really like to purchase more research material. There are a few show ideas I've got that require me to buy books, and some books can be expensive. So if you've got a dollar or two to spare every month, think about contributing to my Patreon page. In the long run, you'll make us all smarter. You can go to coffeewithjeff.com, that's coffeewithjeff, all one word, and look for the Patreon link over on the left side of the page. Just click on there, and that'll take you to the right place. Another person I'd like to thank for today's show is my friend Nancy Fry. She suggested this topic way back in February of last year. Hey, Nancy, it took a year to get to it, but I'm finally going to tell the story. Remember, if you have an idea for a story that I can use, then email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com or... Use the Coffee with Jeff Facebook page or Twitter account to let me know about it. I'm always grateful for any help I can get. Now for today's show, there are two sources that I used a lot in writing this. There was a paper written by historian Donald C. Boyd called The Book Woman of Kentucky, the WPA Packhorse Library Project, 1936-1943, and another paper written by Gina Canella Schmitzer, called Reaching Out to the Mountains, the Pack Horse Library of Eastern Kentucky. While I used six or seven sources to write today's story, I relied on those two papers a lot, so I wanted to give them a little extra credit. I got access to these from a site called JSTOR, which provides access to more than 12 million academic journals, articles, books, and primary sources in 75 disciplines. So I can't provide links to them because you need to register to view the papers. But I'll have the names of the articles in the show notes if you would like to look them up yourself. 
There are other sources as well, and I'll have those in the show notes. So let's get to it. The story of how various forms of literature were delivered to the mountain people of eastern Kentucky in the 1930s. We have no greenbacks here. No shiny coins to spend. Leastways, not on dumb old books. Well, Pap takes one look at Lark and clears his throat. A trade, he says. A poke of berries for one book. To my surprise, the lady shakes her head real firm. She will not take a poke of berries, nor a mess of greens, nor anything Pap names to trade. These books are free, as free as air. Not only that, why two weeks to the day she'll come again to swap these books for more. As you might imagine, a Coffee with Jeff episode takes a lot of research. There are many tools at my disposal that makes this show possible. The internet is an excellent source, but sometimes I go old school and and make a trip down to the local public library. It may be hard for some of you younger folks to imagine, but there was a time when the library, either in school or at the center of town, was our only source for information. One could walk in and find a book on a subject they were looking for. And then the most remarkable part of the process was, if you had a library card, which was free by the way, you could take the book home with no charge. Of course, that's with the promise that you would return the book later. It's a wonderful system that's still around today. Oh, sure, the card catalog is now replaced by computers, but still, books are there for anyone to read or use. It probably doesn't seem all that important today, with television, the internet, smartphones and all. But still, there was a time before these electronic wonders when books were both the primary source of learning and entertainment for most of the world. Now, before the 19th century, libraries were built by the rich and were mostly for private use. But in the late 19th century, public libraries began appearing all over America. Libraries were no longer considered a luxury for a privileged few, but now were a vital part of education and cultural awareness. By the 1920s, most communities in the United States had a local library. At the same time, in the early part of the 20th century, the world was changing in other ways as well. Things like automobiles, airplanes, telephones, radios, electronic lights, movies, indoor plumbing, and other innovations, things that would have been hard to imagine just a few decades earlier, were becoming the norm. All this change made education even more critical than ever before. It was now essential for people to know how to read and write. Of course, the best way to do this was to have access to reading material, and the best way to find reading material was the local library. October 29, 1929 was a dark day for the U.S. It's known as Black Tuesday. That was the day the stock market crashed and the United States entered into its longest, deepest, most widespread economic decline of the 20th century, the Great Depression. Unemployment in the U.S. rose to 25%, and it would last until 1933. Life became unimaginably hard for many. But book learning was still possible through the local libraries. But not everybody was that fortunate. Because of the Great Depression, about a third of Americans no longer had reasonable access to public library materials. Some say it was the people of Kentucky that were the hardest hit. Most of the state was way behind the rest of the country in modern developments, things like electricity and highways. They were virtually cut off from the rest of the country. 
And now with the Great Depression, food, education, and economic opportunities were harder to come by. And if that wasn't enough, the people of the Appalachians suffered other disasters. Six months after the stock market crash, the Great Flood of 1930 swept through, killing several hundred residents and closing hundreds of coal mines for most of the summer. By 1933, half the region's coal mines were closed and unemployment had reached 40%. It was estimated that about a third of the people in eastern Kentucky were illiterate, mostly those who lived in rural, inaccessible areas. Many of these people wanted to learn, believing that education was a way to escape poverty. The emerging industrial revolution made education even more important. Coal and railroads were coming to the area, and many Appalachians were ready to take part. That started with education, especially with the children. In a way to turn the country around, President Franklin D. Roosevelt created what he called the New Deal. The New Deal was a series of programs, public works projects, financial reforms, and regulations for relief, reform, and recovery, what historians refer to as the three R's. Major federal programs and agencies were created, including the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Civil Works Administration, the Farm Security Administration, the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, and the Social Security Administration. Now, back in 1913, a program called Paintsville Pack Horse Library was initiated by Kentuckian May F. Stanford. Stanford began a privately owned program to bring literature to remote parts of Kentucky. She believed that library services would not only support local mountain schools, but also provide pleasure and information to isolated residents throughout the county. With the backing of local coal baron John C. C. Mayo, she got the Packhorse Library started. However, this program ended when the funding stopped, with the death of John Mayo a year later. This left 63% of Kentucky residents with no access to public libraries. Now, one of the programs that was part of the New Deal was the Work Progress Administration, or the WPA. The idea was to employ millions of job seekers— mostly unskilled men, to carry out public works projects, including the construction of public buildings and roads. In 1934, Elizabeth Fullerton was appointed as Kentucky State Director of Women's and Professional Projects to coordinate WPA programs. Fullerton had a strong background in education, having served in several positions with the Kentucky Parents Teachers Association. Fullerton decided to revive May F. Stanford's idea with the help of Benton Deaton, a Presbyterian minister. Deaton, who ran a community center in Leslie County, Kentucky, offered his library to the Works Projects Administration if they would fund the project to carry books to people who could not easily access library materials. Thus began the first government-sponsored Pack Horse Library. It said the president's wife, Eleanor, was a big supporter of the program. The first WPA-sponsored packed horse operation was established in Leslie County in 1934 and was an immediate success. Soon, surrounding counties were looking to start their own packed horse library. Letters began to come into Leslie County, like one from Effie S. Heskimo of Columbia, Kentucky. We have no public libraries here, she wrote and our schools are not very centrally located. 
Mrs. A.J. Tucker from Alaska, Kentucky wrote, I am writing for further information about the Pack Horse Library Project. We do not have a complete library at our school, and the children do not have enough reading material available. Within two years, six other counties had started Pack Horse Projects. In the book, Women of Kentucky, the WPA Pack Horse Library Project, 1936-1943, by historian Donald C. Boyd, he wrote that, By the 1930s, coal and railroads had transformed the Kentucky mountains into an industrialized economy. A demand for literacy emerged as a reaction to the oppression and fears of those working in dangerous, unregulated industries. Thus, the Pack Horse Library Project was established at a time when workers viewed the sudden economic changes as a threat to their survival and literacy as a means to escape the vicious economic trap. The plan required the help of people, but not just people, those rare individuals that were willing to do something hard and sometimes dangerous in the hopes of helping others. In many cases, libraries were set up in places like stores, courthouses, homes, churches, and post offices. While the government program provided money for supervisors and carriers, all the books, magazines, and other reading material were purchased through private donations. Now, each library had one supervisor or head librarian. It was the head librarian's job to process donations at the headquarters, repair books, and get them ready to deliver. But the true heroes of the operation were the writers, called carriers. Usually, each library had four or five carriers. Most packhorse librarians were 25 to 35 years old, married, and provided the sole income for their families. And while most of these carriers were women, there were a few men writers as well. The head librarian would load up books on mules or horses, usually owned by the carriers or leased from local farmers, and the carriers would ride up into the hills to deliver their goods. Like post office carriers, these people took their jobs seriously, making their rounds no matter what the weather, to deliver reading material to remote mountain schools and residents over dangerous, rocky terrain. It was a year-round operation. Because modern methods of transportation cannot be used, Ethel Perryman, a supervisor of women's and professional projects in London, Kentucky, wrote to the president of Kentucky's PTA, some folks who want books live back in the mountains, and they use creek beds for travel as there are no roads to their place. On horseback, women workers carry books packed in stout saddlebags, splashing up creek beds, winding along ravines, and carrying books to isolated schools and community centers, picking up and replenishing book stocks as they go to get the entire number of books circulating throughout the county. A reporter on the project described the situation. One route for the Packed Horse Library goes up hell for certain creek. It's a torturous, twisted stream with rocky beds and brush-tangled banks. There is one story, and I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not, about one woman hiking her 18-mile route after her mule had died, carrying her reading material on her back. It's also said that at some stops, dozens of people would wait for the carriers to arrive, then gather around her horse once she got there, hoping for a new reading material. One pack horse librarian, Mrs. Mary Luttrell, recalled her experiences. 
I'd have to hold my feet out to the sides of the horse. The mud was so deep on the roads, and the horse would have to swim the creek when it rained. Old Pearl took me every place I wanted to go. Twice a month they rode out, covering 100 to 120 miles a week. And they did this for $28 a month. That's equal to a little under $500 in today's money. The carriers found a quick distrust from a few of the mountain folk of what they were doing and the books they were bringing. Many people of the area, who were the product of several generations of illiteracy, looked upon the book carriers with suspicion. In his paper, Donald C. Boyd wrote, By the 20th century, people in the southern Appalachia region had developed an attitude that all the world seems foreign. Violence as a result of xenophobia, distrust of the government as a result of the Civil War, and more recent hostilities towards communists and capitalists fueled an even-headedness with respect to their antipathies, which they have applied to all strangers without regard to race, religion, or nationality. These forces would represent significant challenges to the packed horse librarians. Another situation they faced was trying to convince the mountain folk that they were offering this service free of charge. Many were very suspicious about something being offered to them for nothing. In a bid to earn their trust, carriers would read Bible passages out loud. Many had only heard these through oral traditions, and the idea that a packed horse librarian could offer access to the Bible cast a positive light on their other reading materials. But of all of this, the biggest problem they faced was finding enough books. The WPA didn't provide money for reading materials, so all the literature was donated. Even with all these problems, however, the Packed Horse Library was a huge success, and by the end of 1936, dedicated librarians served 50,000 mountain families. By 1937, there were 36 Packed Horse Libraries. Much of what they did focused on children. Books that were popular were Charlie and His Puppy, Mrs. Goose and the Three Ducks, Shoes for Sandy, Up Creek, Down Creek, Mountain Path, and Farm Boy. These represented stories that kids could relate to in their daily lives. There were also books that taught modern science and technologies as well as fantasy, fairy tales, and the classics. Bring me a book to read is the cry of every child as he runs to meet the librarian to whom he has become acquainted, wrote Maggie May Smith, supervisor of the Whitley County Packhorse Library. Not a certain book, but any kind of a book. The child has none to read. According to Jeannie Canella Smitzer, who wrote the paper Reach Out to the Mountains, the Packhorse Library of Eastern Kentucky, a paper a lot of this episode is based on, she wrote... Contrary to hillbilly stereotypes, Kentucky mountaineers were manifestly interested in the outside world. Especially popular among young adults were books on religion, current events, biographies, and history. Mountain women were particularly excited over receiving illustrated home magazines such as Country Home, Woman's Home Companion, and Good Housekeeping. She goes on to say that librarians could not meet the demand for articles on child care, parenting, health and hygiene, food, and nutrition. So they began to create home scrapbooks to share, which included their favorite recipes and quilt patterns. They also did their best to dispel old wives' tales, things like rubbing warm rabbit brains on babies' gums to help cut teeth 
or blowing tobacco smoke onto teaspoons of breast milk to remedy colic. Gladys Lanehart, a supervisor of the Jackson County Pack Horse Library, wrote, It would be difficult to estimate how much good this work is doing to brighten the lives of the people in our Kentucky mountains. Through the whole program, books and magazines were always in short supply. Even when donations were high, many books and magazines had to be discarded due to damage. One issue was the tendency for the borrower of the material to fold the pages in or dog-ear the pages. The librarians began providing patrons with old Christmas cards to use as bookmarks. And the program became more than it was ever intended. Packed horse librarians gave their time to read to sick coal miners and to children who could not attend school. They were often asked to read Bible passages to families who had not heard or read scripture in generations. It became a community communication system. It was common for carriers to be asked to send messages along the route or to ask for doctors or midwives. They brought news of births and deaths to isolated mountain families. By 1943, nearly 1,000 packed horse librarians served 1.5 million patrons in 48 Kentucky counties. By then, however, the Roosevelt administration began to dismantle the WPA. With World War II happening, the money was needed elsewhere. And since the original idea was to provide work, and now the unemployment rate was dropping quickly, the New Deal programs were soon being dismantled. Initially, the Packed Horse Library avoided funding cuts, but in April of 1943, funding for the program was completely eliminated. Quickly, the libraries vanished from the backwoods of Appalachia. The mountain people were once again without reading material, and the Packed Horse librarians returned to their farms or became teachers. It wouldn't be for another 10 years before the mountain people had access to reading material again when paved roads and bookmobiles became common in their area. Carrie Lynch, a schoolteacher in Leslie County during the Great Depression, wrote, The Packed Horse Library Project was the thing that really got children interested in reading, and that gave them a desire to read. Donald C. Boyd wrote at the end of his paper, Perhaps the most important legacy of the bookwoman was having instilled a love of reading into the lives of hundreds of thousands of mountain folk and having exposed otherwise isolated communities to a vast and diverse world. For a brief moment in Appalachia's difficult history, hard times have been made easier by the hard work of a few dedicated women, the Pack Horse Librarians of Kentucky. If Cussie wants to bring the joy of books to the hill folks, she'll have to confront prejudice as old as the Appalachians. Inspired by the true blue-skinned people of Kentucky and the brave Kentucky Pack Horse Library service of the 1930s, the bookwoman of Troublesome Creek is the story of raw courage, fierce strength, and one woman's belief that books can carry us anywhere, even back home. A little bit before I go... One thing that really attracted me to the story was, in a day where everyone seems to be complaining about how awful people are, it shows that there are good people who do good things. Yes, many of these carriers might have taken the job to bring in a little extra income during the Depression, 
but they didn't have to do some of the things they did, like teach kids how to read or deliver messages and such. Most of them went way beyond what they were required to do, just because it was the right thing to do. See, I believe that most people are good. How do I know that? Well, I've got a lot of friends, and and I know a lot of people, and, and all of them are, well, wonderful. The problem is, in today's world, even if one out of 100,000 folks are truly awful, it's that one awful person you hear about on social media. I think sometimes we forget that even though there are horrible people who commit horrible atrocities, they're the exception, not the norm. But anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode can be found at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. A link can be found at the Coffee with Jeff website. Remember, we could always use your help financially. Think about contributing to our Patreon page. Other ways you can help is to leave a review on whatever social media platform you listen to the show on. And you can also tell your friends and repost this on social media. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would love you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome, and you can use any of these places to let me know. Today's show was produced by Robin Kaufhold. I'd like to thank Nancy Fry for suggesting today's topic. I'd also like to thank my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and of course, all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with something fantastic. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you.